This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. You have your copy of God's Word. Look to that Old Testament book. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do, especially I know we have guests here today, just so you kind of are aware. We've got a lot happening today. It's a great Sunday. We started with the ordination of bab- uh, the ordinance of baptism. We're going to end our service with the ordination of one of our men to serve as your deacon. And so uh, it is just really a full Sunday, a great Sunday. And I'm going to read this passage out of Leviticus, and then I'm going to read the passage out of Hebrews, and then I'm going to make a statement where I say this is the Word of God. That is not just because it's been said for centuries in churches, but it is a declaration of the word that is true, that is inerrant, that is immutable, and that which I have just read is that which must be heard well. So listen to it, and I'll say this is the word of God just in case there's any confusion. It's not just some man's idea of what we ought to hear today. And then the response from the congregation, if you so choose to do, after I say this is the word of God, it is a declaration of appreciation and thankfulness to our Lord, and you would say together, thanks be to God. So there's our responsive reading for the day. It's coming. So let me read this to you. Leviticus chapter 8, verses 14 and 15 says, Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. Leviticus, Old Testament law, instructions on sacrifices, and now we're going thousands of years into the future but still thousands of years in our past, to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, that's meaning Christ, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in the, wor- in the worship. That's speaking of the tabernacle there. Verse 22, under, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm editing my sermon as I go because I don't want to get lost in the illustrations. I, I, got in, I went to a conference this week on preaching, so I took good notes. And I went back and erased about a page and a half. So let me just say, I like a good story. I like a good movie. I like it when I'm watching something, and even if I'm confused initially and what's going on, it really is something when it all comes together at the end, right? When, when, you, when you last to almost the credits in the movie and you see, oh, that's why that was taken. Oh, that's what that meant. Same in a book, same in a show, same in a book that is bigger than any other book, the Word of God. When you read the Old Testament Leviticus story and the other stories of the law and the instructions there from our 2023 perspective looking back, often, especially since we're not mostly, I don't know if any of us here are are Orthodox Jews, there might be some who have that in their heritage. Most of us are Gentiles. 
And so as Gentiles, we look at that and we read that and sometimes we are just kind of working through our Bible reading plan because we made a promise to ourselves in Jesus in January we would read it. And then we get to these passages in Leviticus and we read it and then we put it down and we go, I have no idea what that is. I don't know what that means. But if you hang tight and keep reading and keep going and keep underlining and keep studying and keep listening and keep going deeper and deeper into that, eventually what tends to happen is when you get to the books in the New Testament and even some of these that we're reading today, it becomes very clear what was happening then mattered to the New Testament era and what happened then matters greatly today. Those of you who are guests today or maybe haven't been here our first time or haven't been here in a while, we are in the series in the book of Hebrews and the Hebrews is written in the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit given to a writer, to a target audience of people who are Hebrew, who are Jewish by heritage, who have become Christians. But in their Christianity and in the persecution that they are facing, they are struggling with reconciling that which they have been taught their entire life about the law in the Old Testament and that which is made complete in Christ. They want to believe, they do believe, they have surrendered, but now the, uh, the confuser is confusing them and they're starting to question that which they have said yes to, that which they have committed to, and because the persecution upon them and the Christians are not actually a a group of people that are highly touted in the first century in that culture, they're not going to win any elections, they're not going to win any friends, in fact, they're going to have family members abandon them because of their faith in Christ. Some of them are saying, is this Jesus worth it? And so they're questioning everything, not unlike many who are in the deconstruction movement today, questioning everything. Thankfully, our God is big enough to handle our questions. Our God is big enough to handle our confusion. And in the midst of confusion and questioning, he brings clarity. So today, what I did is I said, let's go back to the book of Leviticus because fully understanding the book of Hebrews is not possible without at least a reading of the book of Leviticus and other books of the law. We've spoken about what all this means. We look at the Old Testament book. It's one of the books of the law, of the Torah, It's the writings given to Moses and inspired by the Holy Spirit to put down this writing of covenant between God and his people. I'm going to talk fast, so you need to listen fast. And those of you that are taking notes, make sure you got enough ink, because here we go. We have already spoken of the role of the priest in our series in this, talking about the priest who is Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest. We referenced that in the book of Hebrews. We talked about that king that I keep bringing up that some of you are wondering if I'll ever quit bringing up, but probably not. That's Melchizedek, that Old Testament king, that Old Testament priest, who was a priest before Aaron was ordained as a priest. It's a unique priesthood. Now, we start talking about priests today, and that's not a foreign concept for us. In evangelicalism and Baptist life, we have said for years of things that Jesus is. We come up with these phrases, and they're not bad. They actually have a lot of meaning, but we talk of Jesus being the King of Kings. Then we'll say he is the Lord of Lords, and we'll talk about how he is our high priest, and we'll, we'll, we'll reference all of those things. But historically, especially for the Jewish people, to uh, those who have been taught the Old Testament and the law for their entirety of their lives, the concept of a king being a priest is not possible. So Jesus shows up and he is both. So that's a question they have to wrestle with. And it is unheard of in the Old Testament. And if, you're a, if you've read your Old Testament, if you know some of those old Bible stories, you know the story of Saul. Not Saul who is also known as Paul, but Saul who was the first king of Israel, the king that the people begged for. The king that God said, you want a king? I'll give you what you're asking for. You're not going to like it. So they give him a king, and Saul is a good king to a point, 
but he ends up kind of getting off the rails a bit, and one of the steps of his downfall was his sin of taking on the role that only a priest could do. So it's a no-no. Some of you know the story in Isaiah, we've preached on this and taught on this before, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah goes in and the presence of the Lord fills the place and, and, and it's just this moment of calling and whom shall go, I'd send me, you know, that whole story about Isaiah, if, that, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it, we'll get through this pretty quickly. But Isaiah the prophet was called by God and it says in that passage that it was the year that King Uzziah died. Now that's significant for people that like timelines to figure out when things are happening. But then you have to ask the question, who's King Uzziah and when did he die? So you can look it up, you can find that information, you can research that, but then there's the question of why did he die? Because Uzziah, by and large, was historically, or at least at the time, considered a good king, a good king of the people of God. But he sinned. And of course, all of them sinned, but his sin was this horrible sin of attempting to act as God's priest. Just a good reminder Hey, king, hey, priest, stay in your lane. That's from the original Hebrew. So they weren't. They kept jumping over. So for a king to attempt to do the role of the priest is no small thing. So thus when the Son of God appears and is here in flesh, and it is declared he is a king unlike any king, and he is a priest unlike any priest, and he is a prophet unlike any prophet, he is the prophet, priest, and king, it is an earth-shattering, mind-shattering, mind-blowing moment for the Hebrews that takes a huge step of faith. That might not even take as big a step of faith for some of us as Gentiles as it did for those Jewish believers. Because that's taken everything they had been taught their entire life and saying, okay, but now that's changed. But we have to go to this priesthood today and understand a bit here, so hang with me here. There are a lot of details that I'm gonna try to cover and I will not cover all of them. Hopefully I won't leave you, leave you lost in this. So I'm gonna give you a roadmap. Here's your GPS for today. We're gonna to look at three stops on this roadmap. We're gonna look at the, the con, the, what it means to be consecrated by blood, and I had to look up, I, had to, I needed a C word, and consecrated's a great word. So consecrated, I'm sure you've not even used that word in the last week, but now you can. Consecrated by blood. Second point, commissioned by blood. Third point, cleansed by blood. So now you know when we get to cleansed by blood, we're landing the plane pretty quickly. So here we are, we're just taking off. The word consecrated means a lot, but one of the synonyms is ordained. Both of the words, and we're going to have an ordination service, so that kind of plays in a little bit today as well, but not for a priesthood. That's not what we're looking at. Um, both the word consecrated and ordained could be in the category of church words. You know, words you don't say outside of church or with churchy people, because we have that churchy language. It doesn't mean it's, it's bad, it just means sometimes you need a translator to help people understand what you're talking about. And to help us understand this meaning, and, and words mean a lot, and sometimes we, we kind of dumb down the meanings as we try to make them more understandable, but we're, we're gonna go here just to help us understand it a little more clearly. Think of those words meaning consecrated and, and ordained, meaning to be set apart, because that's not untrue, to be set apart, to be different, to be moved into a different category. There's more to being consecrated and more to being ordained, but there's definitely not less. So we'll go with that. Back in Leviticus 8, we see something happening that's interesting. Um, I think it's interesting, and, and, and we need to understand that Leviticus is one of those books that people just kind of read quickly or skip over. You ought to pause here for a moment and think about what's said here in this Old Testament book. Because what happened in Leviticus 8, you have an ordination service 
a consecration moment, a setting apart service and reality for some people. For a guy named Aaron, who happens to be the brother of Moses, Aaron the mouthpiece, as Moses was the stutterer, and Moses is the prophet called to lead the people of God out of slavery from Egypt, and and Aaron is alongside of him, and then you have Aaron's sons as well. And Aaron is the one that God has chosen, as God has chosen Moses for the specific role he has, God has chosen Aaron to be the first priest of this new priesthood that is being ordained and set apart. The promise between God and his people through the setting up of the law and this covenant relationship between them, the law, the Ten Commandments, and all that is within the first five books, the detailed descriptions of worship are given there, the tabernacle construction, I won't go back into all that, but that's that tent that they carried around with them for 40 years as they were making their way to the promised land. It was a building, it was a portable building before they ever had a temple, they set that tabernacle up. All of this is in this law book. But prior to this moment, even though all of that is given, there is no Israelite priest. There is no priesthood under the law yet. And so at this point, you see a priesthood developed. Israel, the people, the nation, in a sense, is a priesthood. Though not every Israelite is a priest. This is a fulfillment of the promise and of the covenant. For Christians today, especially the Baptist in the room. Those of you like me who have been in Baptist church for at least a season or two, you understand this reality, you have taken it to heart because you have heard it not only stated, but preached and taught in, 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 in various ways, from sermons to Bible studies to Sunday school to vacation Bible school, and we end up with these phrases re- related to priesthood. And there is so much taught about what Baptists understand about priests, sometimes it, not just Baptists, but evangelicals as a whole, is stated to be stated clearly so there is no confusion about what we believe about priests as it relates to others like the Roman Catholic Church or others that might have a different type of priesthood set up. We are not understanding it the same way. So following this this role of the priesthood, following the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, we have this strong emphasis on this phrase called the priesthood of believers. Have you heard that before? The priesthood of believers. See, I heard that my entire life. And it was explained to me as a child and as a teenager that that just means that I have through the Holy Spirit, the priesthood of believers, I have God within me. I have surrendered my life to him. I am his child and I have access to the Father through the Son. I don't have to go through a human mediator. I don't have to confess sins to another human being other than the command to confess your sins one to another. I don't have a priest in a building that I go visit to bring all of my sinfulness to so that they can uh, proclaim absolution upon me. So we understand the priesthood of the believers, but may I just just say that I have not heard that clearly my entire life, and that may be true for you as well. Because if you were to ask many good evangelicals and Baptists and non-denominational Christians, they might say, yeah, I believe in the priesthood of the believer, and then you have to go, time out, whoa, priesthood of the what? Of the believer, not what it actually means. It is the priesthood of the believers, plural. It's not a singular statement. It is a plural teaching. And some of you are going, what? If words matter and nouns and verbs and every other piece of language we have matters, then plural matters over singular. And in the age of 
language being hijacked, let's just look at what it originally meant to the reformers back 500 plus years ago, not just to them, but what is revealed through scripture. It is important that we understand that we are priests together. Priesthood of the believers. So the rogue, lone Christian who is not connected to a fellowship of believers in a local body, whether in the oversaturated deep south of the United States of America with churchianity or the randomness of some jungle area where there may be only two Christians in the entire region in a tribe, we need one another. We need one another. We are priests together, not solitary priests. Does that matter? Certainly in the culture that we live in that has so turned into the idol of the day, independence. What I do doesn't impact anybody else. Well, that's a lie. It's all about me. It's all about, that's a lie. Even in the church. If if Christians fully grasped the concept of this, the church hopping would stop. Because the love fellowship and the love relationship one with another within a healthy, not every church is, a healthy body of believers together would emphasize how important we need one another. Those who like to take the S off of believers will justify any lone thing they do as church. You know, I was out in the boat this morning, just me and Holy Spirit. We had church out there by ourselves. No, you didn't. You had a good excuse to skip church, but you had a good moment in nature. That's not what this means. And I think, to be honest, I've been taught incorrectly or just presumed because I didn't put an S on it growing up. It's all about me. Here's what Timothy George states regarding this. He is a theologian. I think he's at Beeson Divinity School still, or at least he was. He says, in my own Baptist family, for instance, it became common in the 19th and early 20th centuries to speak of the, quote, priesthood of the believer. The reformers, however, spoke instead of the priesthood of all believers, plural. For them, it was never a matter of a lonely, isolated seeker of truth, but rather a band of faithful believers united in a common confession as a local, visible, uh, and I am not a language person, but congregatio sanctorum. If I said it almost incorrectly, then just Google it and you'll get it right. Congregation, a holy congregation. American Baptist historian Winthrop Hudson said this, the practical effect of the stress upon soul competency, there's a good word, as the cardinal, meaning that you don't need a priest to go to, soul competency, S-O-U-L, not S-O-L-E, soul competency as the cardinal doctrine of Southern of Baptist was to make every man's hat his own church. That's kind of a funny statement. What he means was this, is that, you, that there was a false teaching that was propagated by the independents. I'm not talking about independent Baptists. I'm talking about people who love to live independently with their faith and keep it privately, that it's just me and Jesus. It's the jam theology. Jesus and me taking on the world. Not biblical. Not what we've been called to do. And so... He says it's every man's hat and his, under every man's hat is his own church, meaning I just, it's who, it's me. It doesn't work that way. What it means is this, as a sidebar, it, it is a strong reminder that individualistic principle of faith. I understand what I am saying and what I'm not saying. You can't come to Christ as a group. You, you, you don't go to heaven because your daddy was a preacher. You, you, you don't get saved because your grandma loved Jesus. I mean, it is an individual surrender moment. I get that. That's what scripture reveals but the individualistic principle of faith 
This is the reminder. It, is, it has eliminated the understanding and need and the rightful order of the local body of believers. If you've ever woke up on Sunday and said, I don't wonder if I ought to go to church today, you are falling prey to the idolatry of self. Yeah, didn't think I'd get any amens on that. All right, so, well, I mean, why would I? They're all at home watching it. So here we are. Is there a time delay on this video? I don't know. <laughs> Health reasons are understandable, right? Comfort reasons are not. That's why, we don't, that's why we don't FedEx the Lord's Supper to you. Okay? All right. Man, that's like eight sermons right here. All right, so what has happened over time? Hundreds of local churches with thousands of temporal members who either change churches like some people change their shoes chasing the latest 2.0 version of church that has popped up in their town, or they have absolutely abandoned church altogether, sinfully believing that their membership is little more than a name on a roster with no expectations to the role or to one another. That matters today, and it mattered in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. See, this moment in the history of Israel is not just important for Old Testament Israelites, but for all under the New Covenant as well. So let's look back at Leviticus chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron, verse 1, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil of the bull of the sin of the offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You've got to visualize this. There's a tent, there's a front door and everybody's standing there. Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. Verse 6, and Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water and he put the coat on them and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him binding it to him with the band and he placed the breastpiece on him and then the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim and he set the turban on his head all the uniform of the priest no one had ever worn this before he's putting it on him in front of everyone right now in front he set the golden plate the holy crown as the Lord commanded Moses there are important points not to miss in this very confusing thing for modern evangelicals. One, the entrance of the tent of meeting is where this took place. These men are not priests yet. They're not allowed inside yet. I mean, there's just all this, you have to do it here at this place at this moment. No one can enter. And what you are experiencing is they have the tent, they have the Holy of Holies, they have all this, these tools, they have the Ark of the Covenant behind a curtain, and I know the questions come because students would ask and adults, well, how'd they put it in there if they can't go back there? I, I know. It's weird, it's mysterious, and I'm, there are ways, and uh, you'll have to ask somebody about that. Now, but what you're seeing here in this ordination of these priests is the already but not yet happening at the same time. And then you have the vestments, the clothing never worn prior, the robes that were for the first time placed on Aaron and his sons. The details of the color and the jewels are given in other books of the law for you to look at. But let's look at verse 10, Leviticus 8. Moses took the anointing oil, anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. Consecrated, there's the word, set them apart. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head. This olive oil is on his head. We believe it's olive oil. It's coming down upon him. And they anointed him and consecrated him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. If this is boring you, at least take this note away. God apparently cares about the details of life. And apparently God has set up a way to worship him and did not ask for our opinions. 
So the God of details and the God of order and the God of rightness has said, do it this way, and this is how you're going to do it. And if you do it this way, you'll be in obedience to me. The man that had to become the priest had to be cleansed before he could enter. The room had to be cleansed. It's not a small thing. Some within the camp, some outside the camp, all these rules about where everybody had to be. The bull was brought in, it was killed, the blood was splattered, all these things. Let's move on because it's a little, I'm running a little short of time. I want to make sure I get to this. You have <clears throat> this bull that's been offered, <clears throat> excuse me, as a sacrifice for sin. And then you have a separate animal offered and it's called the ram of ordination. So here's point two, the commissioned by blood, blood point. Leviticus 8, 22 through 24. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons, if you can picture this ram, this male ram, sheep, putting their hands upon the heads of the head of the ram. They lay their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it. And Moses took some of the blood, and this is weird. You following along? He put some blood on the earlobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of Aaron's right hand. And on the big toe of his right foot. We have not done that recently here. <laughs> are you following me? These are things that were happening. This is a moment where everybody is staring there going. And yet Moses diligently did what God had commanded him to do. The, the earlobe, the right lobe, the right thumb, the right big toe. Then he presented Aaron's sons and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their ears and the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet and Moses threw the blood and he got a bucket of blood and he's throwing it on the altar. So it's gross. Well, thanks for being here today. We'll just, uh, don't you love it when you just kind of bring that up and don't answer anything? There's a lot of mystery here, a lot of questions. At this point, they have a new designated sacrifice. The ram of ordination had never existed before. It is offered. The priests need to lay their hands upon the head of the ram. The laying on of hands has begun here as an institution, as a symbol. First, as a sign of repentance of sin. Second, as a sign of consecration and commissioning. And sometimes things are in Scripture that don't, and, and do you know this if you've ever read the Bible? There are things that are in the Bible that are not given with a lot of explanation sometimes. And you're, you're, you know, you're looking in the back for the answers. They only give you the odd answers anyway. It's like in school, right? So you're trying to go, I don't even know what this means. And so you're doing some commentary research. You're Googling online and trying to find it. And what you'll discover often on some things is you'll find phrases and great learned theologians and many who are alive today and many, many who have lived many years ago and have studied this and, and have as much original language study as, as can happen. And they will say something like, well, we think... It means this. We believe, and you're like, so for thousands of years, there's been a lot of we think and we believe, and we're not quite sure. God leaves, we hate mysteries. We want it solved, you know? You know some of you fast forward to the end of the movie to see who did it so you could watch it. Some of you read the last chapter first. I know how you are. But there are mysteries, and we want to know. So here we have this really strange ritual instituted, and some will say, well, maybe it was brought over from another people group and from another land. It's one we don't do today. It's, it's not replicated today, but we cannot ignore this. So he took blood from a dead ram, not just a transfusion, killed the ram, took the blood, put it on the right ear, on the right hand, and on the right foot, thumb and the big toe and the earlobe. Then he did the same to the boys. Nice. Why? Maybe this isn't as hard to understand as we might want to initially think it is. It's kind of weird, kind of gross, kind of odd, but his symbolism is great. Think of it this way. 
The blood of the ram is the blood of ordination. It is the blood of being set apart. It is the blood of consecration. And it becomes the blood of commission. Thus the priests, what they're saying is this. As the blood is placed on the right earlobe, what you hear, what the blood is placed on the right thumb, and what you do, and when the blood is placed on the right big toe, and where you go, are consecrated holy things. Now, maybe we're not putting blood on earlobes and toes and thumbs anymore. But maybe we need to revisit the, hey, pastor, deacon, ministry leader who's being set apart and ordained. If you're doing it for name, for notoriety, because it's the fun thing to do, because it's popular, here's the thing. It would be great if every pastor on the planet Every deacon on the planet, every elder on the planet, every Christian, but let's talk about those set apart, made sure that what they heard, what they did, and where they went was God-honoring and set apart. It's a temporal reminder because the priests are not sinless, but it is a reminder of the work that they do. Then cleansed by blood. Let's look at this. How can something that seems dirty like blood make one clean? Well, we've said it before. We'll say it a lot. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So all of a sudden, the Old Testament connects with the New Testament, and through the writer of, the, of what Hebrews had written, what the writer of Hebrews had put together, what God had given him, connects with that and connects with the old and sets us apart, and it all comes together. Under the law, as the Hebrew writer, writer reminds us, Almost everything is purified by blood. For it is the blood that fulfills the payment. It is the blood that covers the cost. It is the blood that pays the bill. It is the blood that is offered so that forgiveness may be given. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, ultimately, that ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God himself, the final sin atonement, the one who never sinned but took on the sin of you, me, and everyone else here that makes us a way to we may know the Father too. It is the blood that cleanses us because it is not our blood. It is the blood of the sinless one. When Jesus took on the grime and the heinous crimes and the filth and the ungodliness and the lying and the cheating and the pornography and the adultery and the murder and the abuse and the selfishness and the corruptibility of every human being, every sin you've ever thought, said, or done that Jesus took upon himself, he allowed his blood, that pure blood, that clean blood, the blood that didn't need to be sacrificed again and again and again. We'll get into that in the next few weeks. That holy, unstained, and corruptible lifeblood was given as the payment because, as the writer says, as the Old Testament affirms, as the New Testament clarifies, the wages of sin is death. And the free gift of God is through that eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But God showed his love for us, as Romans 5, 8 says, that while we were still sinners and did not deserve it, Jesus shed his blood and died for us. If you ever visit a church that won't talk about the blood of Jesus, you've just visited a club with a good show. If you visit a church that is intent on beating you up every time you show up, you may not be in a church there either, just so you know. See, the blood of Christ is gross because it's bloody. The blood of the Old Testament sacrifices, that was kind of ugh, but necessary and severe and serious and not to be ignored. And it because of Christ's blood that was shed on the cross, 
you and I can be redeemed. When Caitlin and Zach were baptized this morning, the symbol of them going under the water was a symbol of the old dying and the new rising up. It was a symbol of Jesus dying and coming out of the grave and defeating death. And it was a symbol to all who saw this today that these two, just like many of you, are not ashamed to say that they are followers of Jesus Christ, that he has paid for their sin. That last little verse in that passage of Hebrews says, under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. So if you skip the blood, you, forget, you skip forgiveness. If you skip forgiveness, your life ends poorly. But there is a fountain, as the old poet would say, a fountain filled with blood, it was drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. Then a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. I pray that you know the Jesus that we have declared in numerous ways this morning. If you don't know him, then today is a great day to surrender your life and be born again. We'd love to talk to you more about that. We're going to close with a hymn, but we're not leaving after the hymn, and we're not going to be here another three hours, so don't try to figure out how to leave early. But we have a very special moment of ordination we're going to close our service with. But right now, it's not about that. It's about what God's doing in your heart. It's about what God's doing in our church. It's about us being obedient to respond well. So we're going to sing together, and I pray that you'll join us in singing together. Let me pray for you. Father, as we come to you together collectively as your church and as our guests and our friends today, we are proudly declaring uh, that which scripture reveals, that you are holy, you are God, you are perfect, you are sovereign, that you are one God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you sent your Son so that he may live the perfect life and die on that cross, shedding his blood, that blood that is pure and perfect, as payment for the sins represented by each and every one of our lives here today, not just represented, but by evidenced in our lives. Thank you, Father, for paying the bill so that I do not have to. Thank you, Father, for redeeming me and others. And I pray today for those that might be being drawn to you by your spirit even now, that you will give them the courage to respond and say yes. And for the remainder of us who are already your children, may our worship of you through this song come to your ears as a sweet declaration and be received well as, as we offer you Jesus' name.